I didn't say I wanted to preach on that subject while the congregation was asleep. I'll preach as a dying man to dying men. We are getting our ideas from the Bible. We are taking the listeners for a swim in the text. We believe that only God makes a preacher, but we want to help him be more faithful. This is the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast with host, Pastor Rob Ginter. We investigate what the Puritans can teach us as preachers today on the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast with our guest, Dr. Dustin Binge. He's the provost of the Union School of Theology in Wales. You might recognize him from episode number 12, A Window into the Faithful Past. You can find that online on our archives at goversebyverse.com slash podcast. Dr. Dustin Binge, welcome to the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast. Yes, thank you so much, Rob, for uh, having me. You're a veteran of the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast at this point in your life. I'm sure it's on your resume by now. But not only are you a distinguished podcast guest, but you've written a book on the American Puritans. In light of that book, give us an overview to help us think through why we can't overlook this part of church history as preachers. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I thought through that question in composing this book with my co-author, Nate Picklewitz. Both of us, both Nate and I, from the onset of this project, were immensely thankful for the work that has been done on the American Puritans or the Puritan movement in general over the past 50 to 75 years. However, it was our conviction, and I think we can argue this point, that we believe that the first 100 years of American church history, specifically with in regard to New England Puritanism, is largely overlooked. It's largely dismissed in the wider context of Puritan studies. Uh, you, You can read about it in academic textbooks, but very few people are telling the human story. They're largely forgotten. And so, therefore, we wanted to compose a book that was on a more popular level of introducing some really key figures of American Puritanism in the hopes that it will kind of reintroduce our audience to the faith and the trials of these early settlers. And so we're looking at nine people, uh, William Bradford, John Winthrop, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, Anne Bradstreet, John Elliott, Samuel Willard, and Cotton Mather. Now, some of these were more statesmen, uh, governmental statesmen. Uh, You have Anne Bradstreet, who was a Um, mother, uh, a wife, a daughter of some of these statesmen. Uh, You have pastors within this mix as as well. So a lot of their writings have not survived, and so I can't really say to your listeners that you need to go to their writings, you need to go to their sermons, Uh, you would be greatly encouraged, and you could use these in their pulpit ministry. But I will emphasize that a pastor needs to read biography for his own soul, for his own spirituality, and for perhaps on a more practical aspect, some uh, illustrative comments that one could make in a sermon by introducing your people to people that they've never heard of or that they've never known. And so I think something like the American Puritans would encourage your listeners in regard to their own personal spiritual walk. Because as we've been told, what you are in private is actually who you are, not what you are in public. 
And so as Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, said, that um, your people's greatest need is your personal holiness. And so I think the emphasis upon one's own spirituality is really substantiated by reading good Christian biography. Before we go into more detail, what are some common myths in regards to avoiding the Puritans? Well, and some of these chapters get into it, and, and I would recommend the book uh, as a whole to, to read some of the context. But a lot of the English New England Puritans have been painted in a shroud of mysticism and darkness that they just went around the, the New England colonies making sure no one was having any fun, making sure no one was uh, playing any games or sports. You know, they were out to brand and uh, burn witches, and they were so superstitious that they were looking for demons behind every tree and things of that nature. And so from uh, books like Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, some of the more popular literary works of this period kind of paint the Puritans in a very bad light. But what we wanted to reveal in this book is that these are amazing men and women of amazing faith and courage and persistence. They were not out to make a name for themselves or they were not out to make money. Their clear purpose was to establish, as John Winthrop said, a city upon a hill, really a beacon of gospel light for the rest of the world. Now, they were not perfect by any means. They had a great many sins and a great many flaws that we have no desire to, to cover over or to hide. But they speak to us now about the freedom of worship. They speak to us now about tenacity in adversity, what Christianity looks like in the public square, evangelizing the lost in, even in the face of possible death. They, they really speak to us about faith in Christ. And so this is a warm, inviting group of men and women that we want to know their story that do not at all fit the characterization of kind of modern American understanding of this particular period. As we think through who these people were, and as you mentioned, biography could really benefit our preaching. How has this studying benefited your own preaching ministry? Well, if I could emphasize one individual that I wrote on, uh, particularly, it was John Elliott, who would basically be an unknown uh, to your audience, though they would know names like David Brainerd and William Carey as the uh, fathers to the modern missions movement. But it was actually John Elliott who was the father of the modern missions movement. He was uh, a pastor uh, who possessed an ardent call to go to his neighbors and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually translated the whole Bible from English to the Algonquin language of the Native Americans in North America during that period in order so that he could share the gospel with them. And so just his ardent missionary gospel zeal has has informed me and my preaching that I need to be more evangelistic. I need to be more concerned about the lost. I need to be more, more fully aware that there are lost, unsaved individuals 
sitting within the congregation every single Lord's Day that I need to be aware, am I making a gospel appeal? Am I pointing them to the cross of Christ? Am I Am I relinquishing obstacles that may be in their way in order to fly to Christ? And so it was him particularly that really encouraged and emphasized the necessity of a true evangelistic zeal within pastoral and preaching ministry. When we're being influenced by these people, how do we deal with their sins and flaws? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I think, first of all, we cannot come with a pseudo-moral superiority to this time. It seems at the current moment that everyone thinks that if we lived in such a time, we would not have acted as they acted. When, however, the truth of the, of the situation is, we are products of our own culture. And if we had lived during that period, we would have been products of that culture and that society. And so it's very easy to stand kind of on our moral superior high ground and think that we are morally superior to these men and women. However, that's not the case at all. And so when we come to a period of this nature, uh, or any period in church history for that matter, we cannot bring to bear on that period our current understanding politically, culturally, etc. We have to try to put ourselves within that time period. That's the only way we can properly understand history. That doesn't mean that we gloss over their sins. That doesn't mean that we cancel their sins. We have to understand that they are very flawed, but we also have to keep in mind that we too are very flawed. We too are very sinful. So where they, for instance, would have tolerated slavery as an issue in their current context, I have to say and would make the argument that perhaps the sin has changed for us, but it's still nevertheless a major, a major sin. We tolerate abortion in our own society and context. And so we have the same sins. They're just called different things at the moment. Something the scripture never does is it never glosses over the sins of God's people. They are very forward. They are very forefront. You don't have to wonder, well, I wonder what kind of sinner David was. No, the Bible is very clear what kind of sinner David is. But we also have to emphasize under that that God is a God of grace, and he is the one that judges our hearts and he is the one that sees our hearts and our intentions. And so that would be my advice. You cannot go to church history on a morally superior high ground because we too are in the depths of our hearts, great sinners, and if, if posed with the same problems, we perhaps would have done worse than they did. Absolutely. Give us some biographies that we as preachers should be informed by American or otherwise in regards to the Puritans? Well, two very simple biographies, and then I'll give you my favorite biography. Uh, Dr. Michael Haken, who was my PhD supervisor, a brilliant church historian, he wrote, uh, published by Crossway, uh, two books on, uh, the first one was Men in Church History, Eight Men That Every Christian Should Know. It's an excellent book. Then he followed that up with eight women in church history that every Christian should know. I would highly encourage your readers uh, to look at those particular books. In addition to that, 
He also wrote a book, and I said two, but I'll say another one. He also wrote a book called Rediscovering the Church Fathers. It would be a very great place to start with an investigation of church history post-apostolic period. And so those are very simple. They're written in a manner very much like the American Puritans, taking individuals and giving biographical accounts. Now, my favorite biography in church history that I read fairly early on that really instilled a love within me for Jonathan Edwards was uh, the biography of Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards by Ian Murray, published by Banner of Truth Trust. That's readily available. You could get that on Amazon or the Banner's website. But it gave me a portrait into New England Puritanism, colonial pastoring, and also a man that we think is very complicated, but is so very full of love and affection as a pastor and a preacher. And so that's Jonathan Edwards, A New Biography by Ian Murray. Thank you very much, Dr. Benj, for joining us today. And as a veteran of the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast, you are not caught off guard by the striking of the lightning round. That's three questions answered in one sentence each. Question number one, give us the names of a person or a couple of people who have influenced your preaching more than any other. I can give you two individuals that have influenced my preaching more than anyone one is dead and one is alive. So the dead would be Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. He has influenced me substantially in regard to expositional preaching and also expositional preaching. Perhaps no one has influenced me greater than John MacArthur. Question number two, what's your favorite meal? Yeah, probably um, my wife and I love this little Mexican restaurant not too far from us. Uh, and we eat there actually a couple times a week. And so that would probably my, be my favorite go-to. Uh, we're just hoping that translates into somewhere uh, once we move here in just a week or so. Bonus question. What do you order there? Yeah, so I normally order just like steak fajitas. Uh, so they come to the table sizzling and it's just really fresh meat and vegetables and beans and rice. Just a very simple meal. But um, I, I always enjoy it and could probably eat that every day after a, a large helping of chips and salsa, of course. <laughs> Question three, are you a ballpoint pen, fountain pen, or it doesn't really matter pen type person? If, if you would allow me to reach um, to the closest pen on my desk, uh, it would be a fountain pen. Um, so I love fountain pens. I've loved fountain pens uh, for as long as really I can remember. Uh, here's one, here's one, here's one. Um, I have a case full here. Um, so I, I love fountain pens. I, I have a slight addiction, I will say. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Benj, for joining us today on the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been such a delight to talk to you. And to you, our loyal, committed communicator. Thank you for always being a part of what's going on. Me and this mic would get awfully lonely here at the kitchen table. So thank you for being a part of it. I'll talk to you next Friday, if the Lord so wills, and I hope he does. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Verse by Verse Preaching Podcast. You can find us online at goversebyverse.com.